Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Check Down Charlie's Football Podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Theo. What is going on, Theo? Uh, nothing much right now. You know, sort of excited because it's been a full calendar year since our last recording. And, you know, we've put a lot of work and effort into making the second season. So, you know, I'm just excited overall to uh, to begin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those of you who follow us on Instagram at Checkdown Charlie's uh, will know kind of what the direction is going to be for the second season. But for those of you who don't, we have decided to make the second season about the Miami Dolphins. Yes, uh, that is actually my favorite team. So as you know, our faithful listeners, uh, the first season was the New York Giants because that was Eric's favorite team. Yep. Eventually, we're going to record all 32 teams NFL history, but we thought it was much easier to first start off with teams that you actually liked because we had a, a baseline set of knowledge that we could uh, you know, pull from. Yeah, exactly. And nothing motivates you more to do research and write scripts uh, than researching your own favorite teams. So here we are. If I had to uh, record a whole season about the New York Jets, I probably would have uh, dropped this project a lot sooner. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jets fans. Focus on something else. (laughs) You're going to have to uh, wait for us to pick up the Jets, I think, uh, based on our own biases here. But uh, We'll see what we can do for you. Why don't we get started with the Dolphins? Our story begins on February 23rd, 1965. A Minneapolis lawyer by the name of Joseph Robbie was approached by a client to see whether or not an AFL franchise was available for purchase in Philadelphia. The AFL, which at the time was the rival football league to the NFL, was headed by Commissioner Joe Foss. Foss just so happened to be a former college classmate and colleague of Robbie's at the University of South Dakota. A week later, on March 3rd, Mr. Robbie would meet with Foss at the Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington, D.C. Foss told his old college buddy to apply for a franchise in Miami instead, predicting it to be one of the marquee AFL franchises in years to come. Clearly, Foss knew that there was a void when it came to professional football in Florida, and Robbie was poised to be able to fill that void. The old legend goes that Robbie cobbled together $10,000 of his own money in order to pour his heart and soul into the new venture. Of course... Robbie wasn't going to be able to do this by himself. He was looking around for potential business partners to join him. As for the mystery client, his whereabouts are unknown. Nowhere in the course of our research were we able to find who this person was or what they ended up doing. Eventually, Robbie teamed up with famous actor, comedian, and TV personality, Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas was a star of his own TV show in the 50s and 60s, and was a fixture in the early days of Las Vegas showbiz and on stage in Miami Beach. According to a Desert Sun article, FBI agent Clayton Taylor said the following. Danny Thomas told me, Taylor says, people accuse us of associating with organized crime. But in the early 30s, the speakeasies were operating and I was earning a living in a speakeasy. I saw things. I didn't say anything because it was my living. I was not connected with it, but I did have to associate with them because of that. So. Imagine if Jordan Peele or Keegan-Michael Key decided to team up with a high-powered lawyer in order to acquire a sports franchise. Miami was a burgeoning market full of untapped potential. Using their connections, Thomas and Robbie would plant the early seeds that would eventually become the Miami Dolphins. 
Robbie would recall, I was practicing law in Minneapolis, minding my own business. One of my clients wanted me to apply for a franchise for him in Philadelphia. Joe Foss told me to forget Philadelphia because the Eagles had an exclusive lease on the stadium. He suggested we should apply in Miami. When I called a meeting of my backers, nobody showed up. So Danny and Thomas and I wound up with the franchise. Suddenly I owned a pro football team, whereas all I had expected to be was a team lawyer. A joint application between Robbie and Danny Thomas was filed shortly thereafter. So this is an excerpt from the Dolphins Media Guide. The man most responsible for the existence of the Miami Dolphins as a major league football franchise is Joseph Robbie. And since the franchise has become a reality, since August of 1965, he has worked around the clock with one objective in mind, a championship team for the fans of Miami. We will definitely be going into more detail on Joe Robbie. His name, obviously being the team owner, will pop up everywhere we go from this point forward. But this is just to give you kind of an early intro to the team. I, I just found it interesting, Theo, because, you know, by the sounds of it, like you said, he didn't really expect to be the team owner. He just kind of like stumbled into owning a, an NFL franchise. From the looks of it, he was just going to be the middleman, sort of like, you know, the mm -hmm. intermediary between both parties using his connections to, to make some money on the side. And, you know, best case scenario, saw an opportunity and thankfully had the backer in, in Danny Thomas because from the looks of it, a lot of people weren't willing to take that risk. This was, however, not the first football franchise that was based in Miami. This title belonged to the Miami Seahawks, who were formed in 1946 during the first season of the All-American Football Conference. The AAFC was another ill-fated competitor to the NFL, but they do have their own place in NFL history. The league needed an eighth team to fill out its schedule, so a man named Harvey Hester led a group of investors in founding the franchise, which would play its games in Burdine Stadium, Burdine Stadium, uh, which would eventually become the Orange Bowl. I want to say Burdine Stadium. Burdine. But... I've only ever seen it written, so apologies. But yeah, so the team played only one season in Miami, going 3-11, and making matters worse. The team accrued over $350,000 in debt in 1946 and wow. had to be taken over by the league at the end of the season. Mike Freeman, who is the author of Undefeated, goes on to explain, they were annihilated in practically every game, had their home opener delayed because of a hurricane, played on Monday nights when it wasn't prestigious to do so, drew 242 fans to one home contest and disbanded just a year later $350,000 in debt. The group that would eventually take over the franchise ended up founding the Baltimore Colts. Many listeners will realize by now that the NFL revived the name Seahawks in the 1970s with the creation of the Seattle Seahawks franchise. This time, things were different. The city of Miami was about to welcome the second iteration of a football squad to the city. On August 16, 1965, after talks with the Miami City Commission, the city was awarded its first expansion franchise at a cost totaling $7.5 million. The Dolphins would play at the Orange Bowl to a capacity of 70,369 fans. So we did the research actually trying to total up $7.5 million in 1965 money. And our source totaled that at about, was it 66 million, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, which is still a fraction of the cost of the current NFL franchises. 
Yeah, now they're dealing in billions, so it's one hell of an investment by uh, by Robbie and Thomas, I would say. After this was settled, it was time to start putting the right people in charge to build the team from the ground up. A month later, on September 21st, Joe Thomas would be named Director of Player Personnel. Thomas would also serve as Assistant to the President, a title assumed by Joseph Robbie. Thomas had been previously with the Minnesota Vikings in the NFL, serving the team in the same capacity. As the media guide would put it, his work in helping build the Minnesota Vikings into an exciting NFL contender is recognized as a masterpiece in professional football circles. So he was clearly a guy that was more than qualified for the job. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to add in, you will be hearing his name moving forward. The guy is the architect of the early Miami Dolphins franchises. uh, So you'll be hearing his name popping up, definitely. On November 27, 1965, Miami would select quarterback Rick Norton out of Kentucky and fullback Jim Grabowski out of Illinois in the 1966 AFL College Draft. Both were drafted into the NFL. Norton decided to remain with the Finns, whereas Jim Grabowski opted to play for the Green Bay Packers. Grabowski was a feature player in the Packers title runs of the late 1960s. So this is obviously before both leagues decided to merge. So there were separate drafts for the same pool of college players. So it was kind of nice in the sense from the college players perspective that they would have both options, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the same thing goes, I don't know if now the, let's say NFL and CFL drafts are the same, but mostly, I mean, there are a lot of, let's say MLB players that get drafted in the NFL because of like Russell Wilson was drafted to play baseball, Kyler Murray, famously drafted to play baseball as well. So these people have options. Mm -hmm. I think whereas the CFL and NFL differ is that there are top prospects that the CFL covets, but if Mm -hmm. they know that there's a chance that they'll play in the NFL, they'll just not draft them because it's a foregone conclusion that it's pretty much a wasted draft pick. Whereas here, NFL is still clearly superior to the AFL at this stage, but it's not a foregone conclusion. Exactly. So they would also select and John Roderick out of SMU in the redshirt draft. So the pieces of a brand new franchise were falling into place. The foundations of professional football in South Florida were laid by Joseph Robbie and a group of investors. Joe Thomas was brought in to work on the products on the field, but what they needed next was an identity that would set Miami apart from other teams. As for the brand and identity of the team, more progress would be made the following year in 1966. On January 14th, the AFL franchise was officially named the Miami Dolphins. The name would be taken from a team-sponsored nickname contest. According to Mike Freeman's Undefeated, the team settled on a dolphin as their mascot after a 33-year-old housewife won the contest. Mrs. Robert Swanson of West Miami was the official winner. She received two lifetime passes to home games as compensation. Try as we might, the woman's name is lost to history. Call it a sign of the times that the only way we have of identifying this woman is by her husband's name and by these quotes. Quote, I really don't know why I picked the dolphin, except the dolphin is supposed to be an intelligent animal, and the name just came. She's quoted as saying, She apparently wasn't the only one who picked dolphins, but she won the contest by correctly guessing the score of the 1965 University of Miami versus Notre Dame game, which ended in a tie. She apparently used her daughter's magic eight ball to make the decision. Wow. So I assume that the contest was, there were a list of options and basically the most popular option was the one that was taken, but then the winner of that contest 
was drawn from that pool of nominations. Right. It sounds like what they did was, you're right, they narrowed it down. They picked the Dolphins because the majority of people picked them. And then eventually Mrs. Robert Swanson, Mrs. Swanson, let's say, won the contest because she guessed the score of the game. So they had to narrow it down somehow. And that's how they chose to do it. On January 29th, 1966, the organization would take an even bigger step and named George Wilson as the franchise's first head coach. Wilson was a former player who played end at Northwestern, graduating in 1937. From there, he played 10 years in the NFL for George Hallis and the Chicago Bears, alongside such names as Sid Luckman and Bronco Nagurski. For the average NFL fan that's not quite familiar, Sid Luckman and Bronco Nagurski are sort of like foundational characters in NFL history. We won't be talking about them right now, but we'll definitely get Back to them in later seasons, especially when we uncover the history of the Chicago Bears. Upon retirement in the NFL, Wilson began his coaching career as a Bears assistant. In 1949, he'd make a career-altering switch and become an assistant for the Detroit Lions. That would last seven years. Eventually, he would rise to the position of head coach. Wilson was named coach of the year in his rookie season. He coached the Lions for eight years, finishing with a record of 57, 45, and 6. So George Wilson was known to be very lax with the players back in his days with the Lions. Often he'd go out for drinks with them after practices and games. So what we would call a real uh, a real player's coach. You know, he seemed to get along with everybody in the locker room. Uh, More than a player's sports. coach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll get into that later on. George Wilson would actually win a championship in 1957. And the quarterback of the Lions at the time was a fellow by the name of Bobby Lane. After Lane suffered an injury following the championship game in 1957, Wilson famously decided to trade his star quarterback away. There were also whispers that Bobby Lane was involved in betting on games, so clearly it's not something that was unique to Pete Rose or Calvin Ridley. Bobby Lane's detractors also pointed out that he had a history of drinking and driving, which at the time was admittedly more widespread, but equally as despicable. After the trade, Lane would utter the famous words, the Lions won't win for the next 50 years, which came to be known as the curse of Bobby Lane. In 2008, 50 years after that proclamation, the Lions would go 0-16, capping off the worst season in NFL history. I'd like to point out this is one of the fun things we uncover while researching NFL history is like you try to get so focused in on one team but there are so many connections throughout the league that you can't help but learn about different things right and clearly like the curse of bobby lane is something that's quite famous especially since the lions are sort of like have been a dumpster fire over the last 50 plus years yeah you know and they're always picking towards the top of the draft it's interesting that the first coach for the miami dolphins is connected to nfl history in another way yeah, absolutely. And any any Lions fans listening to this, you'll have George Wilson to thank for your last championship. I mean, the guy obviously knew what he was doing, or at least had a track record of, of knowing what he was doing. And you can clearly see how his experience led him to be with the Dolphins. But I agree with your assessment, Theo. It's honestly, the more research you do on an individual team, the more you realize that the NFL is just a totally interconnected web of of different things. And like, 
the butterfly effect in the NFL is so huge of like, if this guy hadn't have done this, then this wouldn't have happened and so on and so forth. So, and you get so much more of a sense of it when you're researching uh, one team, you tend to go down a rabbit hole for sure. And what I'd like to reiterate is like one of the reasons, and I'm not making an excuse for us, but one of the reasons this research is taking much longer than it should is that you can't go into a silo. It really draws you into different like teams, different histories that you weren't expecting from the beginning. After George Wilson was finished with the Lions, he would spend one year as an assistant coach of the team formerly known as the Washington Redskins before taking over for the newly founded Miami Dolphins. So as quoted by Bill Brocker of the Miami Herald when describing Wilson, the Dolphins' vigorous head coach is a believer in defensive toughness. As a player with the Bears and coach of the Detroit Lions, Wilson was connected with clubs who built reputations on defensive character. Wilson was known as a tough but considerate coach. He would often break off practice with competitive diversions like relay races to help players unwind. Wilson would put it himself, some need a little chewing out now and then, and others need encouragement. Brocker would also add that Wilson may never be known as a coach with the awesome dedication and constant application of a Paul Brown or Sid Gilman, whose thoughts seldom stray from the X's and O's. But Wilson has a unique personal touch and understanding of human strength and frailty that sets him apart. Sooner or later, his players come to understand and appreciate this quality. The result is a boundless team effort, the kind that wins football games. So just by reading the description, who does this remind you of, Eric? Personally, I could sort of relate Wilson to a less successful version of Pete Carroll. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely agree with that. Pete Carroll is currently the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. I would say, and he's known more for what he did in college and, and USC, and he brought kind of that same energy of relating to the players and kind of relentless positivity but not being too strict on them and allowing the players to be who they are and not kind of making them fall in line. Uh, would that be a fair way of putting it? Uh, yeah, most definitely. And I want to emphasize the less successful part because I feel like if we're making the comparison to Pete Carroll, we're basically saying Pete Carroll's not an X's and O's guy, which is not necessarily the case. But what we want to emphasize is that what distinguishes Pete Carroll is his like sort of raw, raw personality. And that's sort of the strength that they're describing Wilson uh, in this article. When Brocker says that he's not dedicated to the X's and O's like a Paul Brown or Sid Gilman, for those of you that don't know who those characters are, well, Paul Brown, the Cleveland Browns are named after him. And he was one of the most important characters with pushing the game forward from a strategic point of view. Yep. And same with Sid Gilman. Mm -hmm. We will definitely get back to those, those characters, but... It, just the comparison, they, the writer of the article wanted to point out that he's not them, but he does have his own strengths, which are also highlighted by Pete Carroll. Right. I mean, clearly he's taken from his own experience as a player and thinking, if I was coaching myself, how would I want my coach to, to coach me? Like, obviously he thought that, you know, we need more competitive diversions, like you said, relay races and, you know, relaxing moments and this is a, a brotherhood, a fraternity kind of yeah. environment, you know? I would definitely want to share a beer with my head coach. <laughs> yes, for sure. So a month later, another major event would take place that would change the course of football history. So on June 8th, the AFL, which is the league that the Dolphins are currently in, and the NFL announced to the public that they agreed to merge. The official merger, where each league would become a conference and play a combined schedule, would not be finalized until 1970. Progressive steps would be taken in the meantime, 
The first step would be an AFL-NFL World Championship game at the conclusion of the 66-67 season, which is the Dolphins' first season, a match eventually known as the Super Bowl. Funny enough, the Dolphins' first season would coincide with the creation of the Super Bowl, and a first combined draft would also take place at the conclusion of that season. Like, talk about investments. I feel like perfect timing is an understatement for Joe Robbie's situation, Rizzoli. Yeah. You luck out and are able to go in on an NFL franchise when you thought you were just going to be like sort of the mediator between one party and the other. Not only have you become an owner, but your investment has essentially doubled because you are being absorbed into the bigger league. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me wonder, who is this mystery client that gave him the tip to invest in a in a franchise? Like clearly this client knows something or knew something that you know, we didn't all know at the time or no, not a whole lot of people knew at the time. Maybe this client had uh, a secret in uh, or he knew, for example, or she knew that there was going to be some sort of merger that would make the franchise way more valuable. From my understanding, that mystery person was only interested in Philadelphia, right? Which mm. the Eagles had already staked a, a claim in that territory. So, you know, maybe they did, you know, have a, a better long term view of these things. But maybe not because they decided ultimately not to to join the Miami franchise. Most expansion franchises need to go through their fair share of growing pains before actually developing into contenders. And the 1966 Dolphins were no exception. On August 6th, the Dolphins played their very first game, losing 38-10 in a preseason match in San Diego. Six days later, they would play their first home game at the Orange Bowl. Unfortunately, they would lose 33 to nothing to Kansas City in front of a crowd of 36,000. According to Undefeated, the players were locked out of their own dressing room for 15 minutes after the game until one of the groundskeepers would find the key. Isn't that like just a stark contrast to how things work right now in the NFL? I mean, you can tell that this is a, let's call it a grassroots operation at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The first regular season game was against the Oakland Raiders on September 2nd at the Orange Bowl. Fans in the stadium were anxiously waiting to see how their new hometown team would fare. Running back Joe Auer would stand near his own goal line, awaiting the opening kickoff of the game. As the ball flew into his arms, Auer would follow his blockers and send the place into a frenzy, returning the opening kickoff for a 95-yard touchdown. Danny Thomas was seen running down the sidelines in ecstasy. Can you imagine a better start to the expansion franchise? The place was going bonkers, and Joe Auer just became everyone's new favorite player. So just like Andrew Luck's first touchdown pass, Matt Ryan's first touchdown pass, Mark Sanchez's 60 on on his first throw, the place erupted. Absolutely. Imagine you being a fan in that stadium and then, you know, you're you're not sure about this franchise, but you're excited to see how it goes. And then they take the opening kickoff back for a touchdown, which is like one of the more rare plays that you would ever see in a football game. And it's like incredible to see somebody do that. And that's the first you know, regular season action of your team. Like, imagine the feeling of the fans in that stadium. Yeah, that's a hair rising on the back of your neck sort of feeling. However, the Finns would finish their inaugural season with a record of 3-11. According to Mike Freeman's Undefeated, there were just over 12,500 season tickets sold. Going into 1967, Coach Wilson would have this to say about the state of the franchise. Last year, we were all freshmen together. This year, we're sophomores. And there isn't a football coach in America high school, college, or the pros who wouldn't prefer a sophomore team over a freshman aggregation. Matter of fact, we have been better, period, in 1966 if we hadn't been so hard hit by injuries, which is like the ultimate coaching faux pas. 
Behind the scenes, while Robbie would stay the owner, minority partnerships would change hands several times. Danny Thomas, the actor we were talking about in question, would slowly exit the fold and make way for new partners, one of which was W.H. Keeland, also known as Bud, an industrialist from Wisconsin. On June 1st, 1967, Bud Keelan and Joe Robbie would agree to equalize their stake in the team. Clearly from the business side, there were things changing. On the field, Wilson was still the coach and he was saying that we were rookies back then and we're one year ahead and we're gonna be one year better. Some other off-season activity of note. So remember when we talked about the combined draft, which was gonna take place post-Super Bowl? It most definitely worked out in the Miami Dolphins' favor. The Dolphins were struggling at the quarterback position, constantly switching between John Stofa and the coach's son, George Wilson Jr. So on March 14th of that year, the Dolphins picked quarterback Bob Greasy of Purdue first and tackled Jim Riley of Oklahoma in the second in the very first combined AFL-NFL player draft, which went 17 rounds. Greasy was the first player taken by an NFL team. Wilson and the Dolphins put a lot onto Greasy's shoulders. The Purdue product, like many highly drafted QBs before him, was expected to carry the load for an offense with relatively few playmakers. So a modern day equivalent would have to be Trevor Lawrence, in my opinion. Greasy was a record breaker in college and could do no wrong until he made it to the NFL. His first season had its share of bumps along the way, but Greasy showed promise in the Dolphins' second season and led them to a 4-10 record after coming in for the injured starter, John Stofa. After going 4-10 in 1967, they would experience another substandard season in 1968, finishing with a record of 5-8-1. Thankfully, they would continue to draft well, and before the 1968 season, they would acquire major players that would contribute to future footballing success. Remember Joe Thomas? the man responsible for the Vikings' early success in the 1960s, this man was responsible for retooling the Miami Dolphins of the 70s. As the Dolphins would put it themselves, this past January of 1968, the Dolphins, because of previous judicious trading, were able to make six draft selections in the first three rounds. And overall, his work, and they're talking about Joe Thomas, was generally acclaimed for having secured the best draft of players since the Miami team has been in existence. On January 30th, the Dolphins select fullback Larry Zonka and Indiana tackle Doug Curzan in the first round of the college player draft. The Dolphins actually get 21 picks in 17 rounds. Other notable players would include defensive tackle Manny Fernandez and running back Jim Kick. Entering the 69 season, George Wilson was on thin ice with owner Joseph Robbie. Despite having the foundations of a solid squad, he could not escape the basement of the AFL. To his credit, he had some comparisons to make regarding his squad's development. He would compare Miami to the situation in Minnesota and Dallas. Both were expansion teams like the Dolphins, Dallas in 1960, Minnesota in 1961. In the first three seasons of play, Dallas won 9, Minnesota won 10, and the Dolphins won 12 games. This past year, the Dolphins and Vikings had both made it to the conference final. And he's quoted as saying, In 1966, we said, we'll be competitive. In 1967 and 1968, we made the same prediction. We'll win more than we did last year. So, at the risk of sounding monotonous, we'll say it with reference to 1969, we'll win more than we did last year. Wilson would emphasize the talent on the Dolphins roster. Running backs Mercury Morris, Jim Kick, and Larry Zonka. Quarterback Bob Greasy and linebacker Nick Bonaconti, who they acquired from the Patriots by way of trade. Unfortunately, he was not able to tap into that potential, 
falling short of his promise on improving the previous record. The Dolphins would finish 3-10-1. Wilson would subsequently leave the Dolphins, never to coach again in the NFL. To put the state of the franchise into perspective, the Orange Bowl had a capacity of 70,000, but the team sold a total of 17,478 tickets for the entirety of the 1969 season. Joe Robbie and the Dolphins' front office knew that something needed to change in a hurry. With the team struggling on the field, there were rumblings in the front office of a potential move to another city, which was Seattle. Even though it was not explicitly stated, we have made the assumption that previous partner Bud Keelan was pushing for the move. Joseph Robbie acted swiftly by recruiting five prominent Miamians to replace some of the existing partnership in order to keep the team in South Florida. The Dolphins would finish the 60s with a record of 15-29-2, hoping to put the past behind them. After cementing his position in the front office, Joe Robbie realized that he needed to shake things up going into the 1970s. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.